Reading today is from Genesis chapter 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man named Adam, um, named Hera. And there Judah met his, the daughter of the Canaanite man named Shisha. He married her and laid with her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, who, she, who he called Er. She conceived again and gave birth to a son called Omer. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shisha. He was at Zeba when she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. And the Lord said to Omar, Lay with your brothers, and Judah, sorry, said to Lamar, Lay with your brother's wife, and fulfill the duty of her as, as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Omar decided that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he laid with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep her from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. And Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shemar grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brother's. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shisha, died. And when Judah recovered from his grief, he went to Tamar and the men who were shearing his sheep and his father, Hema, the Adelite, went with him. And Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on the way to Tamar to shear sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, covered them with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Ema. And on the road to Tima, for she saw that though Shisha had grown up, she had not been given him as a wife. Now when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she covered her face. Not realising that he was her daughter-in-law, he went over to the roadside and said, Come here, let me sleep with you. But when she would not, um, and what will give you? To, what will you give me to sleep with you? She said, He's, "I'll send you a young goat from my flock." He said, "Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it?" She said, "He said, What pledge would I give you? Your seal and your cord and the staff in your hand." She answered, and he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After he left, he took she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent a young goat um, by his friend, the Amatite, in order to give the pledge back to the woman, for he could not find her. And the man who lived there, um, and when the shine prostitute who was beside the road of Emma, and there hadn't been any shine prostitutes here, he said, so he went back to Judah and said, I can't find her. Beside the men who lived there said, there, there haven't been any shine prostitutes here. And Judah said, Let her keep what she has, and we will become uh, a laughing stock. After that, I will not send her a young goat. But you didn't find her. After three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitute, and as a result, she is now pregnant. And Judah said, Bring her out, and give her, and let her be burnt to death. And as she... And as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she said, and he said, 
See if you can recognize these seals and cords and staff these are. And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I am. Since I wouldn't give her my son Sheila, and he, she did not sleep with her again. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took the scarlet thread and tied it round his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, So this is how you have broken out. And they named him Peter, Pizza. And then his brother, who had known the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was given the name of Zerah. Okay, so a bit of an interesting reading, uh, a light read. I'll pray and uh, ask God's help before we take a closer look at it together. Gracious Father, thank you for all of the Bible, even the bits that are unpleasant like this one. ask that you would give us insight into how you were speaking through your people then uh, and how you are speaking uh, to us now as those who trust in the Lord Jesus and are full of your spirit and are keen to know you more. Please help us grow in our understanding of you and your ways and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if these two people were to come uh, walk into church today, who would you sit next to? This is Brian Welch. He's the guitarist for the very successful rap metal band Korn, which I'm sure you're all familiar with and you've all been to their concerts, uh, which started in 1993 uh, and punched out uh, hip-hop beats with heavy guitar riffs uh, to dark, sexually explicit and disturbing lyrics. Uh, in 2005, Brian left the band uh, with the management citing this. He had chosen the Lord Jesus Christ as his saviour and will be dedicating his musical pursuits to that end. Uh, he's still a Christian to this day, uh, saying it just earlier this year. Uh, Jesus forgave me for all that stuff. To realise the magnitude of the freedom, freedom to be forgiven for such dark things, you know, for those who've been forgiven much, love much. That's what Jesus said. So that's what happened. This is Sheila Keen Warren. Uh, for 27 years, she was married to Michael after dressing up as a clown and shooting her first, his first wife dead as she answered the door in 1990. This is her mugshot upon being arrested a few years ago. Scandalous, really, isn't it? To think that it's this guy who pray with us and for us over that girl. This guy who's the righteous one. But God seems to work with the scandalous, as we see in the passage today. But before we get there, uh, let's recap on where we've been so far in Genesis. God made promises to Abraham, promises which were passed on to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob, promises to make him great, promises to make him into a great nation, promises uh, to make kings come from him, promises to give him the land of Canaan, and promises to bless the nations through him. And up to this point, God's seeing these promises come to pass. God's made Jacob great. He's given him a bunch of wealth and success and 12 sons and families and their families. God's changed his name to Israel, which will become the name of the nation uh, after him. And God started settling him and his family in the promised land. But as we saw last week, uh, the family of promise is in trouble. Uh, the favourite son, Joseph, 
uh, is hated by his brothers, so they sell him off as a slave while their father grieves bitterly for him, thinking he's dead. Now, we know that that's not the end of the story for Joseph. Uh, he will eventually end up as Prime Minister of Egypt, and as such, he will use his power and his glory to bless many people from different nations during a terrible famine. And the brothers and the father will be reunited and end up living uh, together in Egypt. Now, that's how the book of Genesis finishes. That's how it ends up. In a way, it's kind of a happy ending. It's a little bit like uh, the first Star Wars movie that was released in 1977, episode four, A New Hope, that has a happy ending with the, with the Death Star being blowing up, uh, blowing up, as I'm sure you know. And yet, that was only the first epic story in an even bigger saga where that there are hints of this throughout that film, which is kind of how Genesis chapter 38 works. It's as a hint. It's a hint of a bigger story that Joseph is a part of. Uh, it's a little bit like what's called an Easter egg uh, in, a, in a movie or in a video game. An Easter egg is a, is a message or an image or a feature hidden in software, or a video game or a film or uh, another usually electronic medium. Uh, like this uh, hieroglyph of R2-D2 and C-3PO in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. You may have missed it, but uh, you can go and watch the film again, and there it is. Uh, that's an Easter egg. And chapter 38, uh, on Israel's son, not Joseph, but Judah, is an Easter egg. An Easter egg in the story of Joseph, which is a massive, not-so-hidden message, uh, a message that hints at the bigger story in which Joseph's own story sits, that's the story of God blessing the world, as he promised, through Judah's family line. So that's where uh, the passage is taking us today. Into the Easter egg of Judah and his family line to see, firstly, uh, the promise of kings and Messiah. Uh, to secondly, see that promise come through a scandalous righteousness. So that thirdly, we might live a daring faith. So, firstly, the promise of kings and Messiah. Because although Joseph is the son of interest in these final chapters of Genesis, Judah is the son of greater interest to the bigger story of the Bible as a whole. Uh, and clearly, God doesn't want us to forget this. Uh, as we shift from Joseph being sold as a slave in Egypt, at the back end of chapter 37, we shift from Joseph to Judah, leaving his brothers for a life among the, the Canaanites from verse 1. He marries one of them, verse 2, which doesn't seem smart. So far in Genesis, any association with Canaanite wives has been frowned upon. Uh, his father, Jacob, was strongly encouraged by his father, Isaac, not to marry any Canaanite woman, but to marry within the family. And Esau, uh, Jacob's brother, seeing that his folks were so against Jacob marrying any Canaanite women, just out of spite, went and married two of them which caused him and his parents a lot of grief. So Canaanite wives, not so great. Not a great idea. Not the best thing for an Israelite. And yet, what's even more problematic, particularly for God, is Israel's family line not being fruitful, as per God's command. And particularly Israel's son, Judah. Because God has plans for Judah's family line, as mentioned. God has in mind to bless Israel with kings, particularly through Israel's son Judah, as Israel later prophesies over Judah. When he says this, uh, Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. 
And in keeping with this prophecy, we're told later in the Bible that Perez, Judah's son, born to Tamar in this chapter, is to be the direct descendant of King David, and then to David's greatest son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as the Gospel of Matthew records. Uh, This is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Terah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, etc., 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 verse 6, and Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, etc., on and on and on, verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So, Judah's family line, it's a big deal. God's promise of kings and indeed blessing the whole world through one of these kings, the Messiah or the Christ, it's all wrapped up in Judah's descendants. Jesus is Judah's greatest descendant. He'll come to die for the sins of the whole world so that millions upon millions might know God's forgiveness and the glory of being reconciled to him and knowing him and enjoying him both now and forever. This is what's on on the line with Judah's family line. This is what's at stake. So perhaps from this perspective, we might understand why God's so angry at Judah's son, Onan, who refuses to further on Judah's family line. Verse 6, we read it earlier, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for her brother, your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Although a, a popular form of birth control back then, and even now, uh, then that, that Onan's doing, what he's doing here, it's, it's so bad and, and worthy of death, you've got to ask why. <laughs> I mean, it's just a, a popular form of birth control. Why is this so serious? Well, although Judah tells Onan to marry Tamar to raise up offspring for his brother, he, he could have said no. Uh, And the responsibility would have fallen to the next closest willing relative. We see that in the book of Ruth. If you want to go and look at it there. But he says, yes, clearly uh, he finds Tamar desirable. He's happy to sleep with her. But he doesn't want to give her children. uh, Because that would mean her child would get more of the family inheritance than he would. uh, Than him and and maybe even his own children down the track when he has them. So he thinks he can have his cake and eat it as well sleep with Tamar whenever he likes, and keep the lion's share of his father's inheritance for him and his own. And this is too much for God. Uh, God puts him to death. Not just because he abuses his brother and his wife in this way, but because by that abuse, he's preventing Judah's family line from continuing. He's getting in the way of God's promise of kings and Messiah. He's getting in the way of God blessing the nations. And understandably, that's a big thing for God. Which brings us to the second point, God's promise of kings and Messiah through a scandalous righteousness. As the story goes on, we see it's not just Onan sinning against God's commands and plans, Judah does as well. He doesn't seem to see that God's hand is in the judgment of his wicked sons. 
Instead, he superstitiously comes to see Tamar as bad luck. (laughs) Verse 11, we read, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son, Sheila, grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Judah had no intention of giving Tamar to his third son, Sheila, because he thought that she was bad luck. Every, every son she touches dies. Imagine that as a superpower. Judah would have called it the Tamar. But Judah wants to save face, so he says what he knows he should say, live as a widow in your father's household until my son, Sheila, grows up. Well, at least some of that is what he should have said. Uh, the bit about his son, Sheila, is what he should have said. Uh, but the bit about living as a widow in her father's house, well, that's not so great, because Judah is the one who got Tamar as a wife for his firstborn, Ur. Tamar's welfare, it's his responsibility. He should have cared for Tamar as the defenceless widow of his son, and instead he dumps the responsibility onto others, and he has no intention of giving Sheila to Tamar as he should. And in this, he's just as bad as his son, Onan. He's getting in the way of God's commands and plans. And so in a, uh, a weird kind of twist, Tamar takes things into her own hands. She saves Judah from this greater sin by a lesser sin. She dresses up like a prostitute to get Judah to sleep with her to get her pregnant, as, so that Judah provide for her as he should have. And as all this comes to light, and Judah finds out what she's done, he has a moment of clarity. Verse 24, we read, story goes on, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these things, she said. And she added, see if you recognise whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognised them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Sheila. And he didn't sleep with her again. See, although deceptive, Tamar works to see Judah provide for her as he should have. And in so doing, save him from frustrating God's bigger promise and plan through his family line. Tamar ends up giving birth to twins, uh, one of which was is Perez, who's the descendant of King David, as mentioned earlier, and all the kings after him, and most importantly, the king of kings, the Messiah, Jesus. And although we might flinch from the way that she goes about doing this, Judah acknowledges her righteousness and his guilt. She's righteous, I'm not, he says. As it happens, Tamar's only sin is being Judah's poor widowed daughter-in-law, poor and utterly dependent on others, a widow, perpetually stuck in at least ceremonial grief, having to wear the clothes of grief, and a daughter-in-law to Judah, pledged to Judah's son, Shelah, so she's unable to marry anyone else. All of this is no fault of her own, and yet through her scandalous and yet righteous act, she saves Judah from the even greater sin of frustrating God's commands and plans to continue his family line the way that God designed so, too, so that he could bless the world. It would seem, then, 
that Tamar saves Judah from Onan's fate. By her scandalous and yet righteous act, Tamar saves Judah from God's judgment and death. Sound familiar? A while ago I got into Johnny Cash, uh, particularly the albums that he produced just before he died, which were a bunch of covers of songs from other bands. And he covered one song, a song called Hurt, written by Trent Reznor of the industrial rock band Nine Inch Nails. There he is, Trent Reznor. Uh, but Johnny Cash's cover of, of that song, Hurt, is just better than the original. Don't get me wrong, I really like the original. Uh, you might not like it, but uh, with its nihilistic introspection and its industrial sound, it's kind of my, my kind of uh, vibe. But Johnny's sparse acoustic cover, it's just an, such an honest and haunting performance. One uh, reviewer put it really nicely. The line in the song, there's a line in the song that says, the needle tears a hole, visualises the moment when uh, Reznor awoke to an addiction which also tore holes in the soul, in the soul and in profound sense of loss uh, that shrouds the lyrics. Cash's own addictions are well documented and he recognises uh, the gulf created by the loss of emotional and physical feelings of self-possession and of identity. Yet, through his rediscovered faith, he's a Christian, and the support of his wife, Cash had redeemed himself and towards the end of his life was able to reflect upon mortality, having closed the void Reznor's lyrics had exposed. It's like the words and the sentiment of that song, Hurt, they just fit better with Johnny than with Reznor. Well, in the same way, Tamar's scandalous righteous acts is like a song. A song composed by God in the big play of the Bible. A song that Jesus covers later on and just makes it better. Like it was written for him in the first place. Which of course in God's economy it was. As Jesus dies in the most scandalous and yet righteous way to save people from death and God's judgment. As the Apostle Paul can say, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, or better, a scandal in the Greek, it's scandalon, a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, to non-Jews. The crucifixion of the Christ is the scandal above all scandals. Not just that Christ died, but how he died, crucified. Because we're just so familiar with it, ah yes, Jesus was crucified, it takes some effort of of the imagination to understand the single degree of public disgust caused by crucifixion back in the day. There's a famous and scandalous uh, artwork, it's called Christa. It was made in 1975 by the British sculptor Edwina Sanders. It's a bronze sculpture of a crucified nude female Christ which caused quite a stir stir when it was first displayed in a cathedral in Manhattan in 1984, so much so that it was quickly removed kind of days later. If the thought of a crucified nude female Christ scandalises you, hold that feeling and then project it into your thinking of the actual historical crucifixion of Jesus and feel afresh the scandal of that. 
Because the crucifixion of the Son of God is the scandal above all scandals. Crucifixion was designed to degrade people in public, naked, left to be eaten by birds and beasts. Victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. And in Jesus' crucifixion, we have no one less than God degraded in this way. If that doesn't scandalise you, then nothing will. And yet we know that God saw this through, made him who had no sin, Jesus, the righteous one, to be sin for us, to be that which is hated and despised for us. Why? Well, the Bible tells us, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus suffered in righteousness by the scandal of the cross for our sin, as we trust that he did this, we're actually in him. And as such, his righteousness becomes ours. We're saved from God's judgment. We're saved from death. And Tamar's scandalous yet righteous act is God's song of righteousness, a song that reaches its crescendo in Jesus' crucifixion, sung for the benefit of those who need to be saved and don't deserve it, like you, like me, like Judah. So that, like Judah, we might see that we're guilty and that Christ is righteous. Now that might be scandal. That might be scandalous to you. The idea that you're not a good person. That Jesus was crucified for you precisely because of your guilt before God. If that offends you, please let it offend you, not so much to humiliate you, but to humble you. So that, like Judah, you might admit that you're wrong and accept that Jesus is right. And then wonderfully know God's forgiveness and the blessing of being righteous before him. And then, a bit like Tamar, look to live a scandalous yet righteous life in Christ, which is our third point. Since God's promise of kings and Messiah come through the scandalous and righteousness of Jesus, let's, let's live a daring faith in him. A faith that may have some the same scandalous notes of Jesus and Tamar in it. After all, Jesus calls his disciples to take up that most scandalous of things, the cross, and to follow him. To follow him in righteous in a righteous life that goes beyond the rules, that goes beyond the calculated innocence and double standards that we can so easily fall into, as Jesus says elsewhere. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were sticklers for God's rules. They were seen as the good guys. Godly, upright, the ones who seem to have it all together, who can confidently pray in front of uh, others, who can talk on something that they've read from the Bible with tears in their eyes, who say all the right things and do all the right things, but if they're not moved by the scandal of the cross to ever admit that they're wrong, to dare to be wrong or to dare to be seen to be wrong, it may be that they've misunderstood where true righteousness is found and miss out on on the kingdom of heaven. And this was Judah. 
right up until his confession. Notice his outrage at the apparent guilt of Tamar in verse 24. Bring her out and have her burned to death. Technically, that, that was what should have happened. It's proper punishment for prostitution. But all the while, he's been de- neglecting a poor widow under his care. Bit of double standards there. But I wonder if we might fall into similar double standards. Like being more scandalised by an unmarried couple being alone. More scandalised by that than the neglect of the widows amongst us. Or more scandalised by our friends not inviting us around for lunch than letting the socially and relationally poor and needy amongst us go home again, alone. More scandalised by what others, others spend their money on than making sure that we're generous with our own money towards those who are in need. More scandalised by our friends choosing to talk to others at church than failing to see others who are by themselves in their need for our care. More scandalised that church isn't doing it for you than what you aren't doing for your church family. It would seem that a daring faith, a faith that flows from the scandalous righteousness of Jesus, is a faith that will be prepared to kick against convention, kick against following the rules as long as they don't cost you, kick against gossiping, kick against writing people off because they don't look like you, talk like you, or hold to the same political or social conventions as you do, kick against all this, even if it's scandalous to others, for the sake of loving those who cannot love us back. This would be seen to be something of the righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees that Jesus is encouraging, a faith in Jesus that works itself out in costly, daring love. A daring faith. And I'm going to pray that that would characterise our faith. Let's talk to God. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and we praise you for your plans. Even through the scandalous, the scandal and yet righteous act of Tamar, you preserved your plans to see your intention to bless the world through Judah's descendant, your greatest, his greatest descendant, Jesus. And that in and through the scandal of his death, we know your forgiveness and we know the promise of your life and you being with us now and forever. Please help us as those who are saved by such a wonderful, righteous scandal to be scandalous in the way that we live out our faith and dare to kick against convention that might offend others, but that is characteristic of the way that you want us to live loving those around about us at cost to ourselves. Please, in the light of the scandalous love of the Lord Jesus, the love that we know, help us to live a daring, even shocking faith for you as we seek to love those around about us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.